Кадры, которые мы получили только что, Владимир Путин Нас по видеосвязи. не слушал. Послушайте сейчас. Сегодня вступает Привет, в силу это Навальный. В Я уже делаю свою работу. А сотрудники безопасности... гоном вас. С новым веком. In his first public remarks in over a month about the crisis he manufactured on Ukraine's border, Vladimir Putin blamed it all on the United States. U.S. President Joe Biden, meanwhile, has dispatched the White House's top cybersecurity official to NATO to prepare allies to counter Russian cyber attacks against Ukraine. The United States has also deployed thousands of troops to frontline states on NATO's eastern flank. And in a phone call with Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov, U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken has called on Moscow to de-escalate the crisis and remove its troops from Ukraine's borders. But as more than 100,000 Russian troops continue to encircle Ukraine, and as Moscow begins shipping supplies of blood and plasma to the front, war fears are very much in the air. And today, we'll look at how the escalating crisis looks from inside Ukraine. Hello from my makeshift home studio in Washington, D.C.'s funky Adams Morgan neighborhood, and welcome to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UTA McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from the magical Ukrainian city of Odessa, a place where I spent one of the happiest years of my life back in the early 1990s, is my old friend and colleague Volodymyr Dubovik, an associate professor in the Faculty of International Relations at Mechnikov National University in Odessa and director of its Center for International Studies. Welcome back to the podcast, Volodya. Great to see you. Good to be back, Brian. Good to have you back. And joining us from Ukraine's beautiful capital, Kiev, is Alexander Hara, a former official with the Ukrainian National Security and Defense Council, who is currently a fellow at the Center for Defense Strategies. Welcome to The Vertical, Alexander. Good to have you. So to get our discussion started, I wanted to get both of you to kind of give me a little feedback on something that's been really puzzling people on this side of the Atlantic. Um, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky has been persistently pushing back on comments by Western leaders, including U.S. President Joe Biden, that a Russian invasion is imminent. Um, Zelensky is clearly trying to calm people down. He's not interested in panic. But this very public kind of disconnect is, is disconcerting to a lot of people right now. Um, in an interview on CBS's Face the Nation on December 31st, Ukraine's ambassador to the United States, Oksana Markova, said that Ukraine and the United States, quote, actually see the situation the same. Same way, and we see the buildup, and we also know that what, what Russia is capable of because they have attacked us already. She added that in order to defend our country, we cannot afford panic. What is this, uh, the cause of this apparent disconnect? What is Zelensky trying to do by kind of tamping down the the threat of an imminent invasion when all the signs in the ground show me that this is deadly, deadly serious? Um, Volodya, you want to jump in on that? I want to get Alexander in on this too. I just want to get this out of the way because this is in a lot of people's minds. Right. Uh, I mean, I'm uh, partly at loss myself, uh, but I might have several theories. One of those is that Zelensky is trying to show that he is not just an object in a conversation between great powers and superpowers, but a subject, you know, that he has a certain will and position and point. he can call the shots. Second of all, he is uh, maybe even sending some signals to Russia to back off and uh, go to the negotiation table. Uh, what is interesting that yesterday in his press conference with Orban, uh, Putin actually said 
that uh, problem uh, that they have is not with Ukraine, it's with U.S. And it's U.S. which is pushing Ukraine and Russia to attack each other. And interestingly enough, uh, Russian representative in the United Nations on the yep. Security Council meeting on Monday, he also quoted Zelensky, uh, saying that... Yeah, no, this bothered me, that Zelensky kind of gave the Russians a little bit of ammunition here, which I, was, which right, so I, I find disturbing. I don't know, it could be a little trick, actually, to show to Russians that we can talk. And uh, there have been also some frictions before, uh, you know, like uh, Zelensky, uh, first of all, had some trauma starting from 2019 when he yeah. was president. And he's still not quite trusting Americans, I think. I'm, I'm afraid so. And uh, that uh, would be my explanation. But we can add something else if uh, Alexander has any ideas. Yeah, Alexander, what do you? How do you see this? Oh, yeah, it's sure. getting a lot of media attention here in the U.S. I have several points from my list to add. First of all, Zelensky is an unconventional politician. He's sincere and sometimes he's driven by emotions. So I believe his press conference when he was talking about it, it showed this. Secondly, during the press conference, in my reading, he was concerned with the economy and he was thinking that threat of fallout war fuels panic, thus rolling back economic activities of Ukrainian businesses and outflow of foreign investments into the more secure destinations. So even without a single Russian soldier crossing Ukrainian border, our economy could be uh, severely damaged. There are some other things, like uh, there could be difference in intelligence. The Ukrainian intelligence can proceed from what we can see on our border, but U.S. intelligence community might have some intel from inside of the Kremlin circles of all the Russian militaries. And it might be an issue of communication uh, because we still don't have the American ambassador. And fortunately, we are going to have one soon. So it yeah. might be uh, helpful to, to solve this issue. Yeah, no, that's a uh, good Brian, point that we haven't had an ambassador. Go ahead, Volodya. Yeah, just one quick thing. Uh, apparently, also, there is some kind of loss in translation thing. As I'm seeing now on Twitter and everywhere, the Jen Psaki now today spoke to the journalists explaining that the administration is not going to use the term imminent about this invasion because it's confusing people. And some people think that uh, Zelensky got a different idea about what was actually meant by Washington. So that's interesting even how uh, good translation or bad translation can influence decisions. Yeah, no, and I mean, Alexander and I were talking off mic before before the program started, and I'm, I'm actually, I've been pretty impressed with the administration's messaging on this, because I think they're really sending a signal to Moscow, like, we got your number, we see what you're doing, we're going to be very public about, about announcing it to the world. Um, so I think that messaging has been very, very powerful and very effective because we know Putin likes to surprise everybody and do the unexpected. And by Biden saying every day an invasion's imminent, the Russians are going to invade, it's almost like goading Putin into not doing it just out of spite. So I actually think the, the, the administration's messaging has actually been really, really effective here. I don't trust President Zelensky's motives at all. I think he sincerely is worried about panic in Ukraine. But in my experience, uh, having lived in Ukraine, I don't know the Ukrainians to be people that, that panic. Um, I, I don't, I, I'm not, that's not, that's not an emotion I tend to associate uh, with the Ukrainians. But does Zelensky, do Zelensky's public comments represent the attitudes of Ukrainians right like now? How are, how are Ukrainians viewing this situation as we see these, you know, this, 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 
massive buildup of, of you know moving up to 175,000 troops, not just on Russia's borders with Ukraine, but of course the, the the Belarusian border with Ukraine from the south from Crimea, and then there's even the possibility of coming in from the west from Transnistria. It'd be a li- much more limited amount of troops, but still there is that vector. How is this being viewed in Ukraine right now? Or are, are, are I know people are going about their business and they're not panicking. I know that's the case, but how are people really looking at this and thinking about this? Uh, I've got the latest uh, Razumkov Center's uh, opinion poll uh, saying that 44.9 percent of uh, of the Ukrainians believe that there is an imminent uh, the threat of invasion, and 43.7 believe uh, that the invasion is not going to happen uh, anytime soon. So mm. we believe uh, Russia is capable of uh, of doing this, and certainly we are worrying about uh, what's going on uh, on the occupied territories and uh, on uh, in, in the proximity of our borders, but. From on the other hand, uh, we can understand that uh, a war is something like a leverage over Ukraine, and certainly it should be used to get uh, political gains. And we cannot uh, see any possibility of Russia to gain this, uh, I mean, political concessions from Ukraine. Uh, uh, the only way is just to capture Kiev and to mm. uh, withdraw, uh, to, to just uh, to change the, the the power and constitution in Ukraine. So it's not going to happen with uh, the the uh, let's say um, even though. Uh, Russians outnumber and outgun us, but we still have 260,000 of uh, troops, 400,000, let's say, those who went through uh, Donbass war Mm -hmm. uh, all those years, and a lot of people, even just uh, regular uh, people, are just uh, getting to the training uh, ranges to get these, let's say, uh, skills uh, how to defend uh, their country. So it's not going to be an easy walk of Russians. No, this is this is not going to be a Malankaya Pobedlitanaya Vaina for Russia. This is certainly not going to be a small victorious war, and I think that's obvious. Um, I wanted to, you mentioned the, the possibility of encircling Kiev, and I wanted to actually talk to both of you about the, the respective cities that you are in. Because with this, I mean, I've been tracking the, the Russian troop movement into Belarus um, for a while for my column for the Atlantic Council and, and talking to military experts about this. And this is kind of, and I want to talk more detail about Belarus in a bit, but I want to talk about this this view from Kiev. Because what the troops in Belarus actually do, in, in addition to spreading out Ukraine's defenses across a wider swath of the border, they also make it a lot easier for Russian troops to get to Kiev. I mean, it's basically a two-hour drive from the Belarusian border to Kiev. Um, they will not need to cross the Dnieper River and, and get to Kiev from the east. So this makes Kiev a lot more vulnerable. And Odessa, um, I, I was actually appearing earlier this week on a podcast, the, the podcast uh, Maritime Nation, which everybody should listen to. I want to give it a shout out. It's hosted by my good friend, the retired U.S. Admiral James Fogo, the former commander of the U.S. Sixth Fleet. And Admiral Fogo and other uh, maritime security experts are concerned about a possible maritime attack on Odessa from the Black Sea as part of a Russian invasion. So I kind of wanted to get what is the mood in the two cities you are in? So, you know, Kiev looks a lot more vulnerable right now than it did a couple weeks ago. Um, there's more and more talk about a, a possible amphibious assault from the Black Sea, which would certainly affect uh, cities like Odessa. So I guess, Alexander, how does it look from Kiev and Vol- uh, Volodya, how does it look from Odessa in terms of civil defense? Well, may I uh, start with, with Odessa instead, uh, because now we believe that uh, Ukraine is the most vulnerable from the sea, and even without uh, this um, amphibious landing operation uh, against our um, uh, 
port cities. The Russians can cut us from the uh, Black Sea and certainly undermine our economy. Something like 80% of our trade goes through the ports of Odessa and some others. Mm. So it's important thing to keep it uh, open. And we actually try to pursue our NATO partners to have a sort of a uh, convoys or a special task force, joint task force of Ukrainian Navy and uh, those of NATO to, to guard our signal lanes of communication. But if you're talking about Kiev, uh, it's it's not going to be easy work. And, and, you know, with the help of the United Kingdom, we're we are having uh, something like 2,000 uh, uh, anti-tank uh, and love uh, devices. Uh, so they would be used without any doubt uh, against the Russian invasion force. And certainly Kiev is not a small city and it's difficult to no. encircle it, not, not, to, uh, to, not to mention take uh, capture of it. So uh, we just, we are not worrying about such a scenario. We, we were more worrying about, uh, let's say, gray zone operations like uh, terrorist acts, like cyber attacks, uh, mm. and possible possible uh, uh, rocket strikes or missile strikes against our infrastructure and the uh, command uh, and control centers. So this is a major concern if we are talking about Kyiv, not uh, not uh, the invasion from Belarus. Uh, where at the moment uh, the Russians don't have such a composition of forces that is capable of doing this. I believe uh, uh, Belarus is a bit different case. The Russians are trying to absorb this country to get rid of all those remaining uh, uh, symbols of independence and sovereignty of the country and to threaten the West and especially Poland with the Sulaki Gap yeah. and, and uh, Lithuania. I completely agree with uh, Secretary Blinken that uh, what's going uh, on in Ukraine and about Ukraine transcends Ukraine. It's yeah. about European secu security architecture, and, and Russians are playing on different uh, directions. Yeah, and I'm going to want to shift to the Belarus piece in a minute because I, I just wrote a piece on that that's coming out today with the Atlantic Council. Um, but before I do, I want to get Volodya's take on the view from Odessa. Right. Right. Yes, Brian. Uh, it really depends to who you talk to, uh, how worried they are. Uh, some people are less worried, some are more. Uh, here in Odessa, uh, probably more because of our geostrategic location. And also we know that we are sandwiched here between Transnistria and Crimea. Yeah. And also we know that we are very vulnerable from a seaside attack. We're always been and uh, we still remain that. And uh, we also think uh, that uh, Putin uh, really cares about Odessa in many ways. Yeah in ominous ways. Uh, he thinks it's a Russian city culturally. He mentioned in one of his last presentations in December, again reminded about events, uh, tragic events of May 2nd of 2014. Uh, mm -hmm. And he actually might uh, recreate this idea of Novorossiya, New Russia, the whole area in the south or of Ukraine. Bessarabia, maybe. Yeah, yeah. So there could be uh, an encirclement if they actually move forces in, or there could be an amphibious operation, or it could be, as Alexander just mentioned, it could be just a blockade of Ukraine's trade, which would be really a difficult uh, scenario for us as well. If uh, given my history with the city of Odessa, if Putin touches that city, which I adore, I'm going to take it very, very personally, quite frankly. So, um, but Odessans are holding up, and you referenced the May, the tragedy in, in the trade union building. I mean, Odessans do have a history of fighting back when you know when Russia shipped in those mercenaries from Transnistria to kind of create trouble in Odessa. Odessans fought back. Um, do you expect Odessans to to fight back this time? Look, uh, it, depending on what kind of threat you're facing. If it is it's just a bunch of people, like it was on May 2nd, a couple of them armed, but no more, and that's possible to fight back just with uh, uh, efforts of uh, average citizens. But if you're talking about a uh, bigger operation, then it's going to be mm -hmm. more complicated, not to mention regular troops. 
because I call Odessa situation uh, in 2014 Donbass light, uh, meaning that uh, they didn't send any troops. Uh, and uh, uh, in Donbass, they actually had hundreds and hundreds of people with machine guns. So it was a different right. situation there. Yeah, I mean, uh, we have a defense uh, here. We do have some uh, Navy. We do have some land forces around Odessa. But uh, we are vulnerable, even just if you look at the map, uh, it's easy to cut across a piece of land and disconnect uh, the city from the rest of, uh, uh, of the country. And if we are to believe some of those leaked plans, but one might assume that Russia actually wanted them to be leaked to intimidate yep. Ukraine, there is such a plan to actually uh, you know, encircle Odessa and cut it away from the rest of Ukraine. Yeah, and that would actually be a strategic objective because you're talking about right now. I mean, this is Ukraine's most important port right now. Um, so, as you said, most of the trade goes goes through Odessa. I wanted to also talk about the uh, the surge of Russian troops into Belarus, um, which means, I mean, what this means is a lot of things. I mean, I I, I wrote today that this is the most important change in the geopolitical calculus in Eastern Europe since certainly since the the annexation of Crimea in 2014, but I would argue maybe even since the Cold War. I mean, taking kind of Belarus, removing Belarus as a de facto buffer between Russia and the West, which is the role it is it has basically played, um, despite how distasteful we find Lukashenko as a dictator. Geostrategically, he's positioned Belarus uh, up until recently um, as, as this kind of buffer. That's all changed, of course. Um, and now Russia is poised to attract attack Ukraine not just from the east and southeast from Russia and the south from Crimea, but also from the north from Belarus. And speaking at the UN Security Council on January 31st, US Ambassador Linda Thomas-Greenfield noted that Russia has already, quote, moved 5,000 troops into Belarus with short-range ballistic missiles, special forces, and anti-aircraft batteries. She added that we've seen evidence that Russia intends to expand that presence to more than 30,000 troops near the Ukrainian border, less than two hours north of Kyiv by early February, and we are now in early February. I see this change in Belarus's geopolitical positioning as very significant, right? Think back to 2014, 2015, when Lukashenko, again, as distasteful as we find him, he was saying things like, I will never allow Belarus to be used to attack a third country. I, I, he maintained very good relations with the Ukrainian authorities, um, in, and he was not clearly not interested in being part of the Ruskimir, or the Russian world. That's all changed now. How do you see and how do Ukrainians see this kind of change in Belarus's status? It's troubling. It's opening a new front for us stretching our forces, stretching our defenses. Uh, this defensive posture that we've been working on for this year since 2014 is now altered because we need to think about this uh, dimension from Belarus. And uh, so I also think that this kind of occupation of Belarus is going on. I think I've seen somewhere today that the European Parliament is prepared to discuss uh, on its agenda the question of the issue of occupation of Belarus by Russia. Mm. And uh, it's also worrying not just for Ukraine, but for countries uh, to the west of Belarus. I think that yes. Poland is seriously preparing, and Lithuania as well, for all sorts of threats with now Russian troops basically coming on their borders. Yes, Poland, Lithuania, and Latvia, for that matter, yeah, are right. all very, very worried about this. And I think this is part. This is partially behind the decision by 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 President Biden to send those U.S. troops to the uh, to NATO's eastern flank. Although my understanding at the moment is they're going to be going to Poland and Romania. 
Um, and there is not yet word on the Baltic states. I certainly hope that there's some reinforcements sent to the Baltic states. How do you see this, Alexander? You track you track this kind of military side of things very closely. Yeah, sure, sure. Just uh, I believe it, it was right uh, move uh, for the administration uh, to back up its uh, diplomacy with uh, Russia on Ukrainian front uh, with uh, reinforcement of our uh, defenses. I mean, 200 million uh, worth uh, defensive equipment and weaponry. Uh, but I believe it was wrong not to send uh, just uh, to show this uh, strong signal to Russia. And certainly we have, a, a let's say, a transparent border with Belarus. And that's why it's possible uh, for Russia to use it uh, to infiltrate some groups and to, to just to shake in our security, soft security. They'll be uh, acting in, in, in a gray uh, zone for sure. And mm -hmm. we are going to be vulnerable from this part uh, as well. And Belarus, of course, also a, Bel a group connected to the Belarusian security services uh, just did conduct a cyber attack against uh, Ukraine. So Belarus is actually already, in my view, a combatant uh, in, 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 in this conflict. I mean, I brought up, I mean, I, I want to pick up on the th things you both have kind of brought up about this kind of de facto occupation of Belarus. I mean, I call it a soft annexation. And this soft annexation has been going on for 18 months now, since August of 2020. Russia's steadily been expanding its military footprint, expanding its economic footprint, buying up assets, expanding its political footprint um, in, 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 in Belarus. And I think they're basically killing two birds with one stone right now. They're kind of completing this soft annexation with this surge of troops into Belarus and troops, quite frankly, that I think are never going to leave. Um, they're talking about building permanent facilities there. They're talking about building a uh, joint military training facility at Hrodna, which is effectively a base. Lukashenko seems to be ready to acquiesce on this air base that Russia's wanted for a long time. But more important than that, we have had this constant back-to-back -back military exercises going on between Russian and Belarusian forces in Belarus. And the rotation of the forces effectively equals a, a permanent Russian troop presence. This is a game changer for Ukraine. And this is this is this is frightening. And I hadn't even thought of the A2AD uh, implications of this. Um, any other thoughts on Belarus on this? Because I, I, I really do think this is a game changer. It was something in the past that Ukraine could kind of count on that Belarus is going to remain neutral in this thing. Remember the, the hot mic incident uh, at the Minsk talks where Lukashenko and Poroshenko were talking to each other. And we had this little exchange that was like, it was really interesting to pick up where Poroshenko says he's playing a dirty game, he's playing a dirty game. And Lukashenko says, we all understand, we all understand. And I took that as a really strong signal. We could not be in a more different world now. Ukraine is basically facing two enemies right now. Um, and that that's got to change the entire equation. Any other thoughts on that? Well, that's true, of course. And now we're even hearing Lukashenko saying that uh, Belarusian troops might actually fight together with Russian troops yep. against Ukraine if needed. So rhetorics is really ominous. And uh, of course, he cornered himself in the corner with his, his uh, will to stay at, uh, at power by any means. And uh, there are only one set of means. That's a Russian. <laughs> Russian troops there. So unfortunately, he is basically a hostage of this situation, uh, definitely not having any sovereignty or any ability to be uh, making major decisions uh, completely under Russian control. And that's unfortunate. And like I said, it's not just for Ukraine, but it's also for the entire broader Eastern European region. It's a new development that we need mm -hmm. to study and to understand what's going to happen. If Russians place some strategic weapons there, that's also already a little bit yeah. different game.
Yeah, no, and, and Lukashenko has very provocatively said that he's he's willing to host Russian nuclear weapons in um in, in Belarus. Another thing I wanted to drill down on is something we talked about a little bit in, in in the beginning, but is the um you know the preparations for this in Ukraine. We're reading a lot of reports of Ukrainians preparing for kind of civil defense slash insurgency slash guerrilla warfare scenarios. We're reading reports about the Ukrainian armed forces training civilians to be able to kind of fight in the event of uh, that an insurgency is necessary. Um, and I, I wanted to kind of get your sense of, you know, how much of this is visible? What are you hearing about this? And is this real? I mean, we we had one, one Ukrainian official speaking on background of the New York Times saying, we're just going to open up the arms depots and arm civilians um, in, in the event of this. What do you see going on? What kind of preparations are being made for this? Is this, is this an organized thing or is this going to be an ad hoc kind of situation? I see just uh, one uh, difficulty of our current government of communicating what the government has been doing uh, to the general public and to our foreign partners. Uh, and possibly because of that and because some misunderstanding of the realities uh, on the ground, uh, the Western journalists were uh, pushing this idea of insurgency or supporting insurgency in the first place. We have pretty strong uh, defense forces and we have uh, pretty much uh, trust of the general public into defense forces. I would say uh, the, la uh, the opinion poll of the last year showed that the uh, uh, armed forces of Ukraine are the highest uh, trusted uh, institutions in this country, 68%. Mm -hmm. Then it, they followed by the volunteer organization, 64%. And then by church, 63.5%. So there is a huge trust in the army. And certainly there is huge trust in those who took arms in 2014 and were fighting when there was a gap uh, in, in, in Kiev, I mean, the power mm -hmm. vacuum in Kiev. Uh, so these people are ready to do this. And uh, some Sometimes it's even, I don't know whether it's funny or, or it's too serious. Uh, for example, the Minister of Defense was lecturing some organizations of Kiev because they begin uh, to uh, be begin to conduct drills of the civil defense, even though uh, according to the law on the territorial defense, we need to have it uh, under the uh, supervision of the armed forces. Mm -hmm. So people are taking uh, care of their lives, of their uh, communities, so, of their cities, and uh, it's a pretty interesting process. Uh, but anyway, uh, one thing that I'm not happy with the government is just they are not clearly communicating what they are doing uh, uh, on the different levels. Uh, they are not conducting publicly uh, these drills and, and trainings uh, uh, that they are preparing for the defense. Mm -hmm. uh, and certainly we see more diplomacy talks uh, uh, rather than, than the preparation of the army. But it's it's going on. Uh, it's in place. There is huge trust in the Minister of Defense and Chief of Defense staff. Uh, they are quite new figures and very respected among the mm. military and the general public and experts. Uh, so that's why we trust what they are saying, and it's, uh, we don't consider it a sort of a, a brevet or propaganda. So you think if there is a if there is kind of this you know whatever you want to call it insurgency civil defense, it, it is going if it happens it's going to be under the guise of the under the supervision of the armed forces. Is that is that is that your uh, understanding? Yeah, sure. It, uh, we, we have uh, three layers of uh, according to the new uh, law on um, uh, national defense. We have three layers like armed forces, uh, then territorial defense, and then insurgency, which is uh, run by the uh, special operation forces, and then actually it's one of the first. 
first uh, military units uh, interoperable. Uh, they have interoperability with NATO, so they are professional and uh, fully equipped with uh, modern weaponry. So they will uh, will conduct all those insurgency on the territory uh, seized by the enemy if, in case. But there are some some movements of the uh, this former volunteer battalions, uh, and they are ready to to fill the ranks with the army or on their own to fight back the Russians. So we have the, the, the readiness of society, at least its active part, and we see preparation of, of the territorial defense. And certainly our armed forces has been on high alert, uh, alert since 2014. Mm-hmm. Volodya, any thoughts on this from your end? No, I think Alexander covered it really pretty well. I mean, there are all sorts of preparations, but how well organized in terms of uh, uh, you know, the, the vertical of power within Ukraine. I think uh, in case of Ukraine, it's sometimes even better when the government is not involved in different <laughs> by their own efforts, you know, like uh, that was a case definitely in 2014. You know, it was completely volunteer organized. Volunteers Initially, yeah. Initially, volunteers yeah. collected the money, volunteers collected the money to buy equipment and so on. Uh, of course, we are a long ways from 2014, fortunately, in terms of our preparation of our army. But in many respects, it's still uh, individual-driven, uh, citizens-driven. So that's really an initiative yeah. of many, particular Ukrainians, showing how strong and vibrant uh, this society is, uh, which is preparing to, uh, you know, to 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 resist. Yeah, no, that was one of the pleasant surprises of 2014. I mean, this basically what was this almost ragtag citizen initiative in 2014 effectively fought the Russians to a draw in the Donbass, which really was what was but impressive. those were different numbers of Russians, though. Those were different numbers of Russians. And so, I mean, everybody's stronger and more organized now. The, the Ukrainian right. armed forces are certainly stronger and more organized now, but the Russians are also stronger and more organized now. So in a lot of ways, 2014 was a dress rehearsal. Before we shift into the second half of the program, where I want to talk about the kind of broader geopolitical uh, aspects of this that I know, Volodya, you want to you want to talk about and have a lot of thoughts on, I did want to look at kind of some of the scenarios here. And one of the scenarios that that, that is out there is that what Russia is effectively going to try to do is take left bank Ukraine up to the Dnieper River and encircle Kiev and effectively partition Ukraine. Um, and I was wondering how, how, how you are both are seeing these, these potential scenarios and how they might play out. Um, because what I want to talk about in the second half is we're basically we're moving into this new old world of kind of great power competition. I don't want to use the word Cold War, um, but there's going to be a division in Eastern Europe, clearly. And the big question at the moment is where that division line is going to be. I mean, I would prefer it to be on Ukraine's eastern border with Ukraine firmly embedded in the western camp. But it's uh, depending on how this conflict, you know, there is, I, I hate to say it, but there's a possibility it could be on Ukraine's western border or it could be right down the Dnieper River in a partitioned Ukraine. And I was wondering how the two of you see the, these scenarios playing out. Alexander, this is more up your alley. So any thoughts on that? I believe the key objective of Russia is not to is not um, placed on Ukraine only. And that's why, uh, if we just uh, consider whether the Russians are. Uh, will be satisfied with uh, this annexation or occupation of uh, part of uh, of our territory. The other thing is whether they are capable of doing this with such a uh, number of forces that accumulated on our border. Certainly not. It's it's difficult to, uh, even for uh, well-trained and hardened in battles in Ukraine and in Syria forces. But uh, let's uh, imagine uh, the worst-case scenario, they occupied half of Ukraine uh, till the Dnieper River. 
So uh, how they would secure political settlement uh, uh, with Ukraine, that Ukraine is not going to be member of NATO or, uh, you know, uh, be pro-Russian in, in, in a way. Uh, it's impossible to do that. And certainly there will be a lot of casualties from the Russian side. And, you, you know, uh, when you start the war, and I love this uh, saying of, I believe it was uh, Muhammad Ali or someone, uh, you have a plan until you get the first punch into your chin. So mm -hmm. uh, you can start a war, but uh, it's difficult to predict what, what how, how you will complete the, your mission and whether it's possible to get uh, those results and the, you are satisfied with those results. So I, I don't think that it's, uh, let's say feasible for Russia today. Get uh, in 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 case of such an invasion, uh, there would be uh, some sanctions from the West. I don't know whether they will uh, destroy the Russian economy or, or whatever whatever sanctions there would be. But certainly uh, the European continent would be in different position. But the Russians yeah. would not gain much in terms of the returning to the geopolitical sphere. They need uh, to keep Ukraine into sphere of influence, in their sphere of influence. But from the other hand, they need to be part of those designers of a new security architecture. Waging war against sovereign nation is different than uh, taking, uh, let's say, Crimea after the so-called referendum or um, you know, pushing this proxy war in Donbass. So mm -hmm. uh, I, I don't think it's the right thing uh, for the Russians to do. And uh, they are certainly rational actors. They are not going to make such a mistake. Uh, they, they will do something just to coerce Ukraine to, to, to uh, agree on their terms, but not uh, to have such an all-out all war with Ukraine. I mean, I, I tend to agree with you with one caveat, Alexander, and that is that, and this always, this never ceases to surprise me, is that Putin doesn't really understand Ukraine. Um, it's remarkable, actually. I mean, uh, he tends to view language and ethnicity as the same as political loyalty. He tends to view the people who speak Russian as a first language in eastern and southern Ukraine as somehow inherently loyal to Russia. And I, I mean, in my experience um, in eastern and southern Ukraine, and I do have some experience in eastern and southern Ukraine, this is not the case. I mean, most people I know in Ukraine speak Russian as a first language. Yeah, you're right. I'm from Donetsk. I'm not an ethnic Ukrainian origin. I'm my my mother tongue is Russian. I'm Orthodox, but certainly I don't like the Russian world, and I'm not uh, going to be a part of this world. And I may I uh, tell you an anecdote. A one a Russian speaker gentleman, the old one, decided to study Ukrainian, and the other gentleman was asking whether you're afraid of those Banderovits uh, that they will uh, chase you. He said, No, I want. Uh, I, I don't want Putin to. Protect protect my uh, language rights. So a lot of Ukrainians are thinking this way. And if you have a look at the language composition of those uh, in the trenches of the bus, majority yep, right. of them speak uh, Russian. So yep. uh, it's completely different. Uh, the, the ethnicity, we are a political nation. And actually, what uh, religion dignity shows that uh, from uh, different uh, ethnic roots, from different languages and religions, uh, uh, the only exception uh, to, to those who were on Maidan were the leftists, the communists and socialists, because they are pro-Russian in Ukraine and elsewhere in Europe and the United States. So uh, that's why Maidan was about a political identity as mm -hmm. Ukrainian nation, not the ethnic Ukrainian religion. It was, it was the formation of a civic nation. This is the way that's I kind right. of saw this. It's a th it's the formation of a civic nation. Volodya, you're also somebody who speaks Russian as a first language, lives in a yes, predominantly Russian-speaking uh, city. Yeah. How does this look for you? 
I'm from Odessa. One of the major, actually, results of the Russian aggression since 2014 is this politicization of language issues, basically not seen in Ukraine. Yeah, I know. It's and amazing. You remember that for years it was a, such a painful issue, very delicate, I very know. politicized. Uh, all the way, uh, uh, but from 2014, because it's now irrelevant indeed, because you have Russian speakers who are strong patriots of Ukraine and the fight yep. for Ukraine and so on. So, I mean, it, this issue might come back to Ukrainian political life sometime in the future, but right now it's uh, really past, uh, you know, post-language uh, society. Yeah. No, this yeah. is remarkable. I mean, when I lived in Odessa in the early 90s, when when you and I met Volodya and I was teaching at Meshkov National University, it was highly politicized. And Odessa was just really a Russian-speaking city. But when I came back to visit you in 2015 to attend that conference you were holding at Odessa University, I was shocked at how much Ukrainian I heard on the streets in Odessa, something you would never have heard in the early 90s. But then there was, I don't know if I told you about this, an incident with the students that were at that conference that really really, really made a huge impression upon me. And this was a group of uh, Russian speakers from Donbass were wanted to speak to a bunch of Ukrainian speakers. It was the students were kind of getting to know each other at a mixer. And, and they, they, they approached the they approached the Ukrainian speaking students and, and, you know, awkwardly, but politely trying to speak Ukrainian with them. And the Ukrainian speaking students said, no, no, we could speak Russian. It's OK. And then the Russians say, no, no, no it's, we could speak Ukrainian. And each side was speaking the other side's language to be polite. Right. And I was like, holy cow, that you would have never seen this in the 90s. And that really drove the point home to me how much this has changed um, so that the, the language issue. But I mean, the, 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 the larger point here is that an occupation of eastern Ukraine, even though it's Russian speaking predominantly, is not going to be as easy as Mr. Putin thinks. And I think he's really miscalculating here because I think he's going to see more resistance from Russian speakers than he is expecting. He didn't learn his lesson um, from what happened in Odessa, in Dnipro, in Kharkiv, in, in other in other Russian speaking Eastern European uh, c cities. I think he's going to make a mistake here and that this is going to be a very difficult uh, occupation. Remember the, the lingua franca of the Maidan was Russian, right? It was, you heard more Russian on the Maidan than you heard Ukrainian. On that note, I guess I'm gonna shift gears and move into the second half. In a few moments, we'll continue our discussion, broaden the aperture, and look at the old new world we may be entering with Ukraine on the front lines of a conflict between Russia and the West. I'd like to remind you, you are listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UT McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from the magical city, Ukrainian city of Odessa, a place where I spent one of the happiest years of my life back in the early 90s, is my old friend and colleague, Volodymyr Dubovic an associate professor in the Faculty of International Relations at Mieszczykov National University in Odessa and director of its Center for International Studies. And joining us from Kyiv is Alexander Hara, a former official with the Ukrainian National Security and Defense Council, who is currently a fellow at the Center for Defense Strategies. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. And if you do, please leave us a big, fat five-star rating and review, as that helps us our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And you can follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. Кадры, которые мы получили только что, Владимир Путин Нас по видеосвязи. не слушал. Послушайте сейчас. Привет. Это Навальный. Я уже свою работу. А сотрудники 
безопасности. Годом вас. С новым веком. So President Zelensky had a visit this week from UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson, but Putin has also been actively trying to drive wedges in the Western alliance, speaking with French President Emmanuel Macron and German Chancellor Olaf Scholz, and of course Putin just hosted Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban in the Kremlin. Just to get our discussion in the second part rolling here, how confident are the two of you that the West can maintain a unified front on this issue, because Putin is very actively trying to drive wedges in in, in the Western community right now. Um, there are a lot of Putin versteres uh, in, in in not just in Europe but here in the United States as well. Um, people who should know better. But how confident are you that the West can keep a keep keep a unified front on this? Because this is vital for Ukraine right now. Yes, uh, it's a great question. Uh, I mean, uh, so far we've been actually surprised uh, in a pleasant way of how uh, Europe uh, may kept uh, its act together uh, with uh, consultations that the Russians had uh, with NATO. Uh, all 30 nations, including Hungary, actually spoke uh, critically of what Russia is doing and in support mm -hmm. of Ukraine. Uh, with European Union as well, uh, High Commissioner Jose Borrell has spoke about this a number of times that uh, EU is strongly supporting Ukraine and they actually provided just recently a huge amount of another credit for, to Ukraine. And uh, we've been actually flushed with uh, weapons and money now yep. right, these days. And that uh, might not uh, really be what Putin uh, wanted to see, but uh, <laughs> frankly, there is so much support. There is now a new fund uh, uh, to support Ukraine been announced today with major uh, backers, including U.S., but also Sweden, Switzerland, and I think U.K. and Canada, uh, and and the weapons as well. There's basically, one plane by another: British, American, Poles are joining, Czechs are joining. Yep. So, yep. ironically, I mean, uh, it's uh, something that uh, Putin probably didn't expect. Uh, that uh, because of his threat, there was actually serious support that we're getting now. And there is a parade of all these politicians here in Kiev. I mean, today, Prime Minister of Netherlands Rutte was here, Boris Johnson just yesterday, and also Prime Minister of Poland, Morawiecki, and, and tomorrow Erdogan apparently is coming. So Erdogan's coming, big, okay, great. Yeah, that's been a rumor that he's coming to us on Thursday. And uh, we'll see. A lot of people are actually saying that it's also done to not give Putin a chance to attack Ukraine when a high-profile foreigner is visiting Kiev. Right, right, right. No, it's, there's almost an irony here is a lot of us are getting the things we wanted and just in circumstances that we didn't really want to, to get the things we wanted. I mean, a lot of us here in Washington have been scared that there's not been enough attention on Russia because the administration was so focused on China. Well, now we're paying attention to Russia, so be careful what you wish for. A lot of us wanted more defense aid to Ukraine. We've been screaming about this for years, and now Ukraine's getting a lot of defense aid. A lot of us were saying we want more U.S. and NATO troops in the Baltic states and Poland. Well, guess what? We're getting that. You know, so it's so in a lot of ways we are uh, getting a lot of the things that a lot of us have been calling for for a long time. A lot of us have been calling for really, really seriously tough sanctions against Russia, like a swift ban, like putting Sparebank on the SDN sanctions list, uh, like export controls. And lo and behold, the administration's talking about these things now. So again, in a lot of ways, Putin has kind of created this situation that I think he may have wanted to avoid and a lot of people like us wanted to see. But that said, I mean, how worried are you when you see 
like things like uh, you know Macron's phone call with Putin trying to kind of it looked like maybe an attempt to cut a separate deal uh, with the Europeans and the Russians leaving the Americans out. Or how nervous do you get when you see the Germans being a little bit wobbly doing to due, due, due to their economic ties with Russia? Do these things worry about you? Because to, to have a unified front, we absolutely have to have the French and the Germans on side. Oh yeah, you are right, uh, and certainly we we've seen American diplomacy at its best uh, during these several weeks. I mean, the talks uh, with Russians on strategic uh, security dialogue and others, uh, and we've seen how the Americans try to discipline the European and especially Germans. Uh, last year, uh, Chancellor Merkel and President Biden signed a joint statement saying that uh, they would not allow Russia to use energy against uh, Ukraine as a weapon. Mm -hmm. And we've seen uh, how Russia has been using uh, this as a weapon against the Europe European countries, not to mention uh, Ukraine. And there is uh, no uh, reaction from Berlin. And the new coming uh, chancellor is saying that uh, he's, uh, he's separating uh, energy issue from the issue of possible invasion to Ukraine. So certainly it's not helpful. But uh, from the other hand, we've seen that uh, the Americans played their diplomacy, played a pretty interesting role. Uh, last week, uh, Mr. Blinken uh, unexpectedly visited Kiev, uh, and I believe the only reason for that was uh, he ag agreed to talk to Mr. Lavrov, and uh, he could not, uh, let's let's say, undermine the uh, the motto of the American diplomacy that nothing about European without Europeans, nothing about Ukraine without Ukraine. So he was just made to visit uh, uh, to Kiev just to show the support, but then he went to Berlin when he, he met with the French and Germans and the British uh, just to, to agree on the, those uh, uh, sanctions um, that could be triggered and that could be imposed on Russia in case of the invasion. So we see this American role and some, let's say, a disappointment from the European side. They are they were out of this table. Uh, we've seen uh, Mr. Borrell saying why, why uh, the European Union not in around this table talking about European security. Uh, certainly, he can blame his predecessors for for uh, decades that had not converted the European Union into the power. Uh, let's mm. say power player in the European continent. Uh, and certainly what uh, Mr. Um, Macron is saying uh, after the talk, uh, talks with, uh, pleasant talks, I would say, with, with Mr. Putin, uh, he is uh, pushing this uh, alternative agenda of European security, which yeah. is wrong, I believe, and, and it's not helpful. But from the other hand, he is uh, on the side of the United States and it's not going to disappoint uh, American administration. So we see uh, the positive role of the United States and I believe it will prevail. Uh, we see some, let's say, uh, Taking ground uh, in, in Berlin and Paris, but uh, I, I believe if you know facing the Russian threat, uh, not just against Ukraine but uh, Europe as well, uh, they will be disciplined and they will follow the lead, and uh, certainly they will they will be in in the camp who is deterring Russia from aggression and from incursion into the European affairs rather than helping them. Yeah, no, I agree with you that the American diplomacy. I, I, I'm I'm very. Uh, pleased with the American diplomacy right now. I mean, this administration had a reputation of being really foreign policy pros. They had some missteps early in the administration, to put it charitably, but they're really on top of their game right now. And one of the things that's really impressing me about what the administration is doing is their efforts to try to really reassure the Europeans on this, because there are real concerns in Europe. It's really easy for Americans to call for things like a SWIFT ban. It ain't going to affect our economy. 
but it's really going to affect the Europeans' economy. It's easy for us to call for tough sanctions. We're not going to have our gas cut off um, when those sanctions come down. It's very possible that the Europeans are. And I was very impressed to see President Biden and Secretary Blinken kind of reassuring the Europeans, making you know, talking to Qatar and other Gulf uh, gas suppliers to make sure that Europe is supply, stepping up the U.S. LNG supplies to Europe and things like that. And I think that's actually re- moved things in, in, in the right direction. With Macron, one of the things I think is a lot of what he's doing is posturing for domestic political purposes. Absolutely. He's facing an election. So I think that's coming. Volodya, what are your thoughts? I know you track this stuff really closely, this diplomatic aspect of it and the relations between Ukraine and the United States and in Europe. Right. Uh, I know this is really your, your wheelhouse. So what do you see happening here? Are you as optimistic as Alexander and I are? Well, I'm uh, cautiously optimistic. One cannot be fully optimistic in such a dire circumstances uh, with uh, Russian troops massing on our borders. But yes, the friends will be friends. Uh, and in many ways, Macron is doing the typical de Gaulle thing, mm-hmm. uh, which was if de Gaulle was doing it in the, in, in the high, at the height of the old Cold War, why not Macron try to do it now? Uh, the equidistance uh, between uh, Washington and Moscow, trying to have a separate policy with Moscow, uh, and uh, Macron is very ambitious, but many of his pronouncements and slogans are not followed by any particular concrete uh, actions yeah. or, or steps or deeds. And he is not the leader that can actually lead uh, uh, the entire continent or grouping of countries. So that's definitely not him. But Germany, indeed, uh, a lot of people here in Ukraine were upset about Germany, uh, not only not providing weapons, but blocking provide, other countries providing weapons. And also not uh, willing to promise to us that if Ukraine is attacked, that Nord Stream 2 will be definitely shut down. Uh, But at the same time, uh, we should also remember that Germany actually provided uh, tons of money for Ukraine since 2014, just not for military issues, but for uh, reforms and other things. So we we should be fair in our assessment. And finally, on uh, two things, uh, the China, you mentioned China. Now, unfortunately, in the recent days, China uh, really came out on Russia's side. And that's unfortunate because they were trying to be neutral but with, with their recent statements from the foreign minister and then how they talked in the uh, Security Council of the United Nations. They are basically against the West, US and with Russia and therefore against Ukraine. And finally, UK, that's a surprising favorite. I mean, uh, someone is going to be probably saying it's some kind of jockeying or some kind of adventure, Mr. Johnson, who wants to distract attention from his domestic scandals. But at the same time, you know, UK provided a lot of anti-tank weapons. They gave us uh, credit, major credit now for energy infrastructure, uh, energy and infrastructure. They're suggesting the new format of uh, Poland, uh, UK and Ukraine. And they are talking about a major new set of sanctions against uh, yeah. Russian money in London Grad. So, so those, at least those four things, that's a big deal. And I wonder if many of us who didn't like the Brexit might probably see a result of this, uh, you know, uh, right. with UK having their hands untied and not looking around their shoulder in Brussels this day. Yeah, no, I mean, Boris Johnson may well be posturing to divert attention, but Ukraine is the beneficiary of that. And you know what? I'll right. take it. I'll take it. Um, If he wants to posture, if it helps Ukraine, I'll take it. Another thing I know you keep an eye on, Volodya, is Turkey. And how do you see the Turkish role in this? You said Erdogan is is, uh, rumored to be visiting Kyiv pretty soon. Uh, how How do you see the Turkish role? Right. It was initially announced uh, that he was definitely coming uh, February 3rd and Thursday tomorrow, but uh, I haven't seen any confirmation, so maybe uh, we'll see tomorrow. Uh, Turkey is in a very difficult and delicate situation, of course. Uh, They're trying to balance uh, their policy 
Uh, we know that they had a rapprochement with Russia. Uh, but people were wondering, is it a tactical thing or is it a long-term strategic thing? A lot of Turkish diplomats of the protocol and experts would say, no, it's definitely not long-term. We understand mm -hmm. that Russia is actually more of an opponent for us in the region. But for right now, we have to you know, right. be closely with them because of energy and what's happening in Syria. And uh, previously, historically, Moscow supported Kurdish movement. Turks definitely don't want to do, don't want to see that now. But on the other hand, there has been, uh, you know, the major interest in Crimea's future and Crimea's fate and what happens to Tatars, because there is a huge yeah. uh, a Crimean Tatar diaspora in Turkey as well. And uh, they've been selling these uh, drones uh, to, to Ukraine. And yeah. apparently the appearance of those Bayraktar drones has been a major uh, game changer, uh, because Putin really got nervous, uh, almost hysterical. The, yeah. the, the, the day when Ukraine just once used uh, Bayraktar to return fire and, on those firing on our positions. So that's interesting. And apparently, the, again, the rumor is that there will be new contracts for more Bayraktars being signed. Uh -huh. uh, and uh, he is uh, really, you know, balancing. And he said clearly, uh, Erdogan, I mean, that we are a member of NATO. So if it comes to NATO versus Russia, we'll be with our NATO uh, allies. And that's another big message from him. I mean, it seems we are getting a lot of collateral benefits out of this crisis. Um, it's, 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 a, it's a frightening time. But, I mean, anything that brings Turkey kind of closer, you know, close, closer to NATO because they've been right. kind of astray for a while is, is, is a good thing. The U.K. role has been extremely encouraging. I've been encouraged by the, the political unity here in the United States on this, except for some – yeah, voices out on the fringe right on cable news talking about how we should side with the Russians, and I'm not even going to dignify this his putting his name on my podcast, but we all know who I'm talking whom I'm talking about. But other than that, I mean, we basically have bipartisan consensus on this in the United States Congress. I mean, there's bills, there's bipartisan bills moving through Congress right now that are going to impose really tough sanctions on Russia, perhaps even before an invasion, which is remarkable looking at this because you can't get a bipartisan consensus in the United States Congress these days that the sun rises in the east and sets in the west and you know that, that the work week, week begins on Monday and ends on Friday. Um, but it, but we do have bipartisan consensus on the need to defend Ukraine, which is is great. Alexander, any thoughts on the Turkish piece? I wanted to actually go to you on that. Certainly, Turkey is balancing between the West and, and Russia, and uh, I, I completely agree that the, the they have more threats uh, from Russia I mean, from the territory of Syria and the activities of the Russian military and their friends, Iranian friends, uh, and certainly the Kurdish factor as well. And certainly Turkey is interested in economic and uh, technological cooperation. And actually, we, we are talking about uh, Turkish drones, Bayraktars, but they, we are going to assemble them uh, in uh, in Ukraine to provide engines for these uh, pieces of equipment. And I completely agree that is game changer in Donbass, because the Russians uh, uh, managed to impose uh, no-fly zone over Donbass, mm -hmm. and that's why with all those tanks, and actually the number of tanks in Donbass is much higher than in Bundeswehr, uh, so uh, they, they were threatening us, and that's why Americans provided us, uh, us with anti-tank uh, weapons, and it was a status quo. But when we get uh, these Bayraktars, we are capable of hitting any target uh, in the depths up to the uh, border with Russia, and certainly Russians need to do something or to show their uh, signature, I mean, uh, showing their presence in Donbass, and they are denying it at the moment, or they can, uh, you know, expect uh, that something could happen and they can manage the situation. Uh, Certainly, the, it wasn't one of the factors why they, they escalated situation with this uh, massive buildup on our borders. So Turkey is playing a great role in the Black Sea, and it's uh, 
uh, we would love to see more role and especially in naval presence uh, because you know because of uh, Montreux Convention there, there is yeah. a limited ability yeah. of the non-Black Sea states uh, to be present in the Black Sea and actually uh, let's say when when the British or American destroyers are in the Black Sea, Russians are behaving much uh, quieter. So uh, mm -hmm. it's a it's a major factor uh, of security for Ukraine as well, even though we are not member of NATO. So that's why we need more, uh, let's say, role of uh, of Turkey. And certainly there is an economic part uh, to that because you know uh, Mr. Trump damaged uh, Turkey uh, badly by imposing sanctions and restrictions uh, on aluminium and other uh, goods. And lira is uh, devaluating, and uh, we see. This process has not been stopped, and certainly Erdogan is still looking at new markets, a new economic cooperation, and Ukraine is pretty good market and yeah. a good partner. So it's beneficial for both of our sides. Yeah, and I mean, again, even if Erdogan's behaving for for domestic purposes, again, if it helps Ukraine, I certainly will take it. Um, we're bumping up towards the end, but there is one more thing I wanted to hit on here um, to wrap it up, and that is, as I mentioned earlier, regardless of how this crisis ends. We appear to be moving into a world of great power conflict and a potentially divided Eastern Europe um, or a divided Europe because Eastern Europe is part of Europe. Um, it's Maybe it's not the Cold War, but it's certainly going to be a normative struggle, a normative struggle between liberal democracies and authoritarian kleptocracies. The question is, where is that line going to be drawn? Um, is it going to be drawn on Ukraine's eastern border, which I is where I would prefer? Is it going to be on Ukraine's western border, where Putin would prefer? Is it going to be down the Dnieper River? However this ends up, Ukraine is going to be a frontline state here. Ukraine is going to be on the front lines of this, what I call this new old world we're entering into right now. Um, and this conflict is a normative conflict. This is a conflict between authoritarian kleptocracies in the east and liberal democracies in the west. Um, is Ukraine, I mean, and this gets into a little bit of domestic politics, but I, th I do think these things intersect with foreign affairs. Um, Ukraine has taken steps to get on the right side of this, this normative line, basically strengthening its democracy and root, taking steps to root out corruption, taking steps to root out kind of vectors of Russian malign influence. Uh, the house arrest and, and, and case against Medvedchuk is certainly part of that, as, as were other things. How prepared is Ukraine domestically and how much political will is there in the Ukrainian elite to basically take Ukraine this, you know, over this last step. If you're going to be West Germany in this conflict, and you are going to be West Germany in this conflict, you got to be West Germany. Can Ukraine be West Germany in all the other senses of that word? So well, not, not an easy question. Uh, but uh, what I could say, uh, it's not about uh, political elite in Ukraine, and, and especially right. after the elections uh, uh, with the parliamentary election we've seen a lot of new faces and a lot of people some of them are not going to be re-elected and uh, it's, it's fortunately for us but the most important thing is ukrainian society certainly we 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 let's say voted uh, for our future on maidan and it was future for dignity and freedom and and, and ukraine is a part of the uh, western civilization and that's why there is no uh, other way uh, for any politician uh, to turn Ukraine into the, uh, let's say, um, in the, to be in the between uh, how, uh, how some Western uh, analytics are trying to portray Ukraine and the future of Ukraine. So there is no other way uh, for Ukraine to survive, uh, whether uh, we cannot survive if we are not a part of the West space of freedom and security. That's why I don't doubt that Ukrainian society would push any government in Kiev to go mm -hmm. westwards rather than eastwards. And certainly you, you, you correctly 
compared us to the Cold War Germany. And actually what we need to do is to remind the current Germans that they were in the same <laughs> position. Uh, Germany yeah. was half occupied by the Soviet power, by Moscow, uh, when it was accepted as a member of NATO. The Chancellor uh, Adenauer uh, rejected the Soviet proposal to unite country on the basis of neutrality. He said that we cannot recognize the other part, I mean the uh, People's Republic of Germany, as a legitimate uh, democratically elected mm. power. That's why we could not uh, agree on those uh, demands from Russia. And certainly uh, uh, Mr. Adenauer was right that uh, the future of Germany and this unification of Germany will come after Germany becomes stronger and as, as a part of the political defense and economic uh, ally of the West. And I believe this strategy is will serve Ukraine uh, much better than, than keeping mm -hmm. the, uh, promises from Russia that they will get, get us uh, Donetsk and Lugansk. Uh, and instead, we need to be a neutral state or non-aligned state. So it's not going to work. I agree with you about Ukrainian society, Alexander. I mean, with something that I, I always repeat because it bears repeating, Ukrainians are the first people in history to die for the European flag on the Maidan. But one of the problems in Ukraine I've always kind of uh, saw was that Ukrainian society, Ukrainian civil society is so far ahead of the elite. Um, I mean, Ukrainian civil society is European. It doesn't aspire to be European. It is European. But the Ukrainian elite is not entirely there yet. It's, if you'll forgive the term, kind of hybrid. You know, it's got its neo-Soviet elements and it's got its Western elements. And I always said when the Ukrainian elite catches up to its own society, um, then we're going to be in good shape. So, Volodya, I guess the, the last question to wrap us, to take us off the air today, I'm going to throw that to you. Are you confident that the Ukrainian elite can catch up to the society? I am not, but uh, as a part of that society, uh, as a part of that society, we'll keep trying to push them in the right direction. And uh, I'd completely agree with Alexander. Civil society plays a major role. One of the reasons, for example, that uh, Zelensky couldn't uh, deliver much of what Putin wants, even if he wanted to, is that there are major limitations that people wouldn't just take it. People wouldn't agree. For instance, if he uh, can he say that okay, Crimea is Russian, or let's do Minsk agreements Russian way? No, he couldn't because the street will be there, people will be yep. there. There will be major uh, dissatisfaction, and actually, maybe in Moscow they're counting on this, on actually pitting one group of Ukrainians against the other, or society against the government. It's one of their plans. And also on the Cold War thing, I've been calling what Russia is doing for years as a unilateral Cold War, with mm -hmm. West refusing to play along. Uh, and the major priority for the West was actually to avoid the new Cold War by any means. Right now, it might be the case that the West wouldn't have any other choice but to actually re return some of those Cold War gestures uh, in in genre, you know, in the same token, in the same manner that Russia is doing. Russia is, I think, they are willing to have a new Cold War. They're missing the old one when everybody feared and respected them and they talked to Washington as equals. And I'm afraid that they deliberately, Putin is deliberately pushing towards that kind of new scenario when Russia is besieged fortress, surrounded by enemies. It's also very convenient for domestic consumption as well. I would say to Mr. Putin about that, be careful what you wish for, because uh, in, in, this, in this new environment, Russia's not going to have access to Western financial markets. Russia's not going to be able to send its kids to school in, in Europe or buy villas in the south of France. They're not going to get all the goodies 
of globalization. They'll be locked behind that that wall. So I think I would tell Mr. Putin to be careful what he wishes for. And on that note, we will wrap it up because that's all we have time for today. I'd like to remind you, you have been listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an adjunct assistant professor at the UK McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. Joining me from the magical Ukrainian city of Odessa, a place where I spent one of the happiest years of my life back in the early 90s, is my old friend and colleague, Volodymyr Dubovik, an associate professor in the Faculty of International Relations at Mechnikov National University in Odessa and director of its Center for International Studies. And joining us from the beautiful Ukrainian capital, Kyiv, has been Alexander Hara, a former official with Ukrainian National Security and Defense Council, who is currently a fellow at the Center for Defense Strategies. Thank you, gentlemen, for an enlightening discussion. No, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for having us. Thank you for coming. I'd also like to thank our awesome production team in Arlington, Texas, which is waiting for a big snowstorm. Lance Ligas is in the virtual control room. He keeps all the lights on and all the complicated machines well-oiled and in working order throughout our discussion. And Zachary Smith handles our all-important post-production duties, cleaning up my many messes and making us all sound a lot better than we do in real life. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. And if you do, please leave us a big fat five-star rating and review as that helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And you can follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. Join us again next week. And until then, I leave you with the ambient sound mix that's been prepared by our production team. Thank you.